managing disaster. So we see uh, retensification. We also see um, it threatening the east coast of Florida. An unprecedented effort racing for a hurricane in the midst of a pandemic. The emergency management director at the middle of it all is with us live. Unemployment payments end. Vaccine trials begin and the president wants to move the election. South Florida lawmakers taking the lead are here to weigh in. Miami-Dade School District makes the call. It is a one-stop shop for all of their learning. Joining Broward and the Keys in all virtual schools. And today's conversation with a candidate. I think the people in Broward County want to change. A veteran lawman steps up, promising less drama, more competence as the Broward Sheriff. It's all this week, this week in South Florida. Good Sunday morning. Great to be with you. I'm Glenna Milberg. And I'm Michael Putney. Glad you could join us. Woo, that was a close one. South Florida escaped a double-barreled dose of simultaneous trouble, a hurricane during a pandemic. We lucked out when Isaias for us was just some wind and rain. We will be talking to the man at the middle, managing the state's emergency response. But first, a live look at the situation right now across South Florida. Weather Authority meteorologist Brandon Orr has the latest on Isaias. Brandon. Yes, when I came in very early this morning, the center of this tropical storm was only 40 miles off the coast of Broward. In that type of scenario, you would think we would have some pretty nasty conditions, but strong wind shear pushing all the nasty weather to the east side of this track, which stays just offshore, offshore of Florida. Maximum sustained winds at 65 miles per hour, and it's, it's expected to stay that way as it moves up the coast of Florida and towards the Carolinas. They're going to deal with that Monday going into Tuesday, so this will likely make landfall up there. The center of the storm is just to the northeast of West Palm Beach, moving away from us here in South Florida. This is an extreme amount of lightning with these thunderstorms on the northeast side of the center. Just note that they're not wrapping fully around the center. That's why the storm is looking still very disorganized. A few light rain bands moving through here in Broward and Miami Dade. No big deal. They're fairly light. Winds have calmed down, although it's still a little breezy out there. Sustained at around 15, gusts maybe up to 20. Watching for a few of these downpours and rain bands to continue and may even pick up a little bit as we get towards this afternoon. Could produce some brief periods of heavy rain and some gusty winds to 45 miles per hour. But Michael and Glenna, I think we dodged this one, but we have to remember there's still four months of hurricane season left. We're just getting started. Uh, we will not forget that. Thank you so much, Brandon. You know, at the helm of managing unprecedented dual emergencies is the state's point person for disaster planning and logistics, the director of Florida's emergency management uh, division. And that person is Jared Moskowitz, who splits his life between Tallahassee and Parkland. And he joins us now right there via Skype. Jared, so grateful for your time with us this morning. And I want to begin by asking you just a kind of a human being question. What is it like to be you in that position at this moment? <laughs> Uh, well, you'll have to read that in my uh, upcoming uh, book. Uh, <laughs> no, all, all, all joking aside, I mean, listen, uh, you know, I, when I took this job, obviously no one was talking about a pandemic, let alone a pandemic uh, in, into hurricane season. Uh, I mean, at, at the end of the day, unfortunately, I went through the, the Parkland experience in, in my hometown, which was, you know, a disaster uh, in itself. Uh, you know, that really helped prepare me. Uh, mentally for what we're dealing with now uh, with with COVID-19 and so uh, let alone now getting into hurricane season so look I'm I'm doing okay obviously uh, I, I try to stay away from testing my 
blood pressure on an everyday level because I, I probably don't want to see what the numbers show. Uh, but, uh, you know, we're doing okay. This is what we all signed up for. Uh, I got the uh, most qualified staff uh, in the country doing, you know, you know, Hurricane Hermine, Matthew, Irma, Wilma, and almost Dorian last year. So, you know, we're pros. Yeah. Jared, I think your book might be called The Room Where It Really Happened or <laughs> The State Where It Really Happened. Happens a lot. Uh, I think that everyone would agree South Florida pretty much dodged the bullet on this one. But this storm, as you are more aware than we are, is now raking up the coast, the east coast of the state of Florida. Give us a status report. Where do things stand for you? Yes, yeah, so, sure. So, you know, this storm has been a little bipolar. I'm a hurricane. I'm a tropical storm. I'm a hurricane. I'm a tropical storm. Uh, but look, this was, in my opinion, a really good test of a lot of the new protocols and procedures that have been put in place uh, here in the state of Florida uh, to uh, battle hurricane season uh, with COVID-19. Uh, Non-congregate sheltering specifically, you know, these are this is something new uh, that uh, Florida helped uh, bring to the forefront with our partners at FEMA uh, who agreed to make it a reimbursable ex expense. So these are hotels that we've brought on that can be used uh, for sheltering so that people can have social distancing. People who might have COVID-19 or fail a temperature screening get diverted uh, to, to that hotel. So that was a really good test of that system. Right now we've had, you know, 50 requests uh, from our counties uh, for uh, all sorts of different equipment. Uh, and 100% of those missions were fulfilled uh, uh, before uh, any impacts have been felt. And so right now, you know, we're watching it as we move up the coast. Uh, I think 20,000 people uh, were uh, have, are at without power uh, globally right now. That's getting restored really quickly on a, on a rolling basis. The ground is saturated, so it's possible we could see some trees come down, which is some picking up of the wind. Uh, so we could see more power outages. Some shelters have been open for you know special needs, pet shelters, so that people have options. Uh, Palm Beach County did a, a vac voluntary evacuation in Zone A, dealing with uh, mobile homes and unsafe structures. But you know, right now, it uh, looks like we're in really good shape, but we're not declaring mission accomplished uh, until this thing is away from us. Yeah, and you know, here in Miami-Dade and Broward and Monroe counties, we're, we're now just focused on some crummy weather and back to really zeroing in on staying safe and healthy from COVID. One of the most significant actions, I think, this weekend was the closure of all the testing sites because of what the potential weather might have been. So I wonder if you would weigh in on the, the problem that that's gonna cause as far as the numbers of testing and especially since results have been in such a lag. I mean, what is the impact of those closures on us tracking COVID now? Yeah, so look, we have to plan for the worst, hope for the best. And so thankfully we, we, we wound up with the best case scenario, but we had to close those sites because obviously, you know, we have infrastructure down there that can't withstand uh, tropical storm force winds. And obviously I can't put people who are working at those sites, nurses uh, and folks wanting to come get tested and other personnel in, in harm's way. So that was the right decision. Obviously there'll be some indirect impacts uh, on testing. Uh, you know, we, we think the sites will only be down for, for three, three and a half days. So we think they're gonna be mostly minimal. Uh, you still could go get tested uh, at a lot of hospitals uh, that we're doing testing or private uh, testing that's been going on. You know, we really have changed how we're doing testing here in the state of Florida, especially over the last couple of weeks. We've gone to what's called observed self-swabbing, where you swab yourself, because uh, we're finding that we're able to get those results uh, in about 72 hours, which really allows contact tracing to pick up. So we've diverted away from a lot of these national laboratories that were having a national issue with reagent and their capacity to complete all these tests for all these states. Obviously, that was unacceptable. Uh, you, can't, you can't wait seven days for a test and expect to do uh, contact tracing. If Amazon 
can get you a package in a day or two, we should be able to get results uh, in the same time. So that's what we're really focused on here in the state of Florida. We seem to be stabilizing. Uh, that, uh, you know, that gives us, you know, some sigh of relief. But let's be clear, you know, we still have a lot of people in hospitals. We still have a lot of families that are dealing with COVID, families that have lost loved ones, families that can't visit loved ones in the hospitals. So, you know, this, this is still affecting us, still affecting us in a very large way. Uh, everyone needs to continue to do, you know, their mitigation efforts, you know, wear masks uh, at all times when you're out in public places, stay home if you can, telework if you can, social distance. Uh, you know, this stuff seems to be working, so we got to keep at it, even though we all have disaster fatigue. Yeah. Uh, Jared, if I may, let's go back to this issue, the challenge of providing shelter in a pandemic. You mentioned non-congregate uh, sheltering. You mentioned the fact that you had some hotels available. But I understand, explain, one of your new policies was if people were going to go be put into a school, that they were going to be put into classrooms, not just everybody into the auditorium. Is that right? Yeah. So what we said is, look, we want people to have a plan. So, you know, if you believe that you live in an unsafe structure or you live in an evacuation zone or surge zone prone to flooding and you need to leave, especially, you know, in a smaller storm like this, uh, we, we want you to have options. So, you know, if you can go to a friend's house, you can go to a family member's house, you know, that's great. If you can get into a non-congregate shelter like a hotel, that's also really good. But if you're going to go to a regular shelter, we work with FEMA, the CDC and the Red Cross uh, on developing protocol, 80 pages of policies that we sent down to the county emergency managers to limit shelters to about 50 people uh, per shelter, social distancing, temperature checked. We provided thermometers. We made sure that PPE was readily available. We sent down PPE kits for everybody that had gloves, hand sanitizer, and masks uh, available. But what we said to the counties is work with your school boards. Rather than putting people in auditoriums or cafeterias, maybe you can separate people by classroom. So those decisions are made at the county level because counties do sheltering and evacuations. But that was part of our recommendation. You know, I want to go back to something you just mentioned kind of blithely. We are stabilizing, you said, uh, too soon to really make a prognostication. But I just want to mention, since we get the new numbers right before we come on the air, that it looks like the, the trend line percentage-wise, state of Florida trending 13% positive, Miami-Dade 19, so under 20, which is actually a positive number at this point, relatively speaking, and Broward at 14% positive. Of course, in context, those numbers sort of are a snapshot of what's happened in the past week, 10 days or two weeks. Give us your sort of expert opinion on that trend line. Go, go into that, if you would, a little bit. Yeah, sure. I mean, look, first of all, let me be clear. We have a long way to go. Uh, you know, we, we are we are nowhere uh, out of the woods uh, at the moment, but the, the trends are looking looking better. You know, those are the positivity rates uh, with retesting people who are positive. If you look at the positivity rates for new cases, uh, we're under 10% today uh, statewide, uh, and we have under 8,000 cases for the first time uh, in a long period of time, new cases, not retests. Yeah. So that's good news. It's not bad news. It's good news. But, but I want to be clear. We, we have a long way to go. This is, this is, gonna, this is a marathon, not a sprint. Uh, you know, it looks like we've plateaued and we're coming down. How fast we come down versus uh, flatlining is very important for those hospitalizations so that our, our medical system can obviously weather the storm. Uh, but, you know, again, uh, you know, I, people need to continue to do mitigation efforts. We need to continue to keep up, you know, stay uh, home if you can. You know, if you have to go out, please wear a mask. They work. If you have to go eat at a restaurant, you have to go out and do those things, please wear a mask. If you can not do those things, telework, 
stay home, uh, you know, because these things are working. It's why the trend line is going downwards. Yeah. Yeah. Good advice. Jared Moskowitz, the director of the Division of Emergency Management. We're glad you're on the job. Democrat in a Republican administration. Nice bit of bipartisanship. We appreciate that. And grateful for your time at this moment. Thanks, Jared. Thank you. Coming up, relief runs out, vaccine trials start. It is all on the plate for South Florida Congressman Mario Diaz-Balart with us next. He disagreed with the president this week over delaying the election. We'll ask him about that. Congressman Mario Diaz-Balart usually supports President Trump on almost every issue, but he split with him this week on delaying the election. South Florida's lone Republican congressman had a lot on the plate this week, including the roundtable with Vice President in Miami this week, where the first phase three clinical trial started for a COVID-19 vaccine. So why don't we begin right there with the congressman live with us via Skype from Miami. Good morning. Good morning, Congressman. Oh, good to be with you all. Thanks. So um, let, let's start that. You heard uh, Jared Moskowitz was with us. You know, everybody is kind of banking across the country on that vaccine, making life normal again. Uh, Anthony Fauci this week said don't expect it another year. Uh, the first clinical trials at stage three is certainly a positive sign. You were right there at the roundtable, Congressman. What can we expect? Give us that inside information. I think a vaccine is coming relatively soon, relatively soon, and then at, at record pace. It's interesting. Usually it takes two to three years, if not more, to develop a vaccine. But this warp speed program, uh, program that we're on right now, uh, we've seen this taking place now in four months. It, there's not one vaccine that is in, in uh, stage three, uh, phase three. There are multiple vaccines that are that are in, in this phase three part of actually testing it with uh, with live humans. Same thing for treatment uh, for this uh, Wuhan virus, uh, which also I think is very, very, very positive. So I'm actually really optimistic that there will not only be a vaccine in relatively short order, multiple vaccines in relatively short order, but also treatments uh, so that if people do get sick, that there are treatments so that, again, they can go home uh, healthy and as soon as possible. Yeah, uh, Congressman, as you well know, Congress sets the date of the November general election, the first Tuesday after the first Monday. It's been that way since 1845. This week, however, President Trump said, oh, maybe we ought to delay it. And you rather quickly said, that's ah, not such a good idea. Why isn't it a good, uh, a good idea? Because states are ready, local governments are, are, are ready. Look, the president throws thoughts out there and then people kind of flip out about that. But it wasn't a proposal. It was just kind of, uh, you know, say, hey, maybe we should. Um, uh, it's not a good idea. Uh, we're ready. Um, obviously, there are some things that do worry me about the elections, but they don't have any, they have nothing to do with the date. Um, you know, what's happening in New York, where the results of a congressional seat are still not in because of, of, of the way that they are doing the mail-out ballots. Not to be confused with absentee ballot, which is actually something that works and is very positive. Excuse me, if I could then, let me follow up here. The president for the last couple of months has been railing against mail-in voting, which essentially is absentee voting. Uh, he says it would pro provide a rigged election result. It's fraudulent. How do you feel about mail-in voting? Have you ever done it? Now, there's a difference, between, and that's uh, let me let me correct you there, Michael. He's not against absentee ballots. He has said that publicly multiple times. You and I remember that here in South Florida a number of years ago, there was an election that was thrown out for the mayor. Yeah, I believe it was the city of Miami, and then the legislature outlawed what is actually legal in California, what they call 
uh, uh, ballot harvesting, where they send out ballots to everybody. Uh, then they go out and they harvest them. And there we have seen some really, really bad things taking place. But this is not theory. Here in the state of Florida, it was outlawed. And what the president is saying is that we should follow the example of the state of Florida, where there is absentee ballots, a process that works. But let's not follow the process that California made legal, which was outlawed in Florida. Why? So is because that, it was shown to be fraudulent. Is that said, are you concerned that the way the president talks about this will have some sort of chilling effect on people just afraid to vote who can't show up? No, because, again, uh, the president has been very clear, and I want to make it very clear, that absentee ballots are, I think, a very wise way to move forward, particularly, by the way, in, in, a, in a moment like this. In Florida, remember, many, many years ago, probably a couple decades ago, you all and I are a little bit older to remember this, uh, you had to, to get an absentee ballot, you had to, you had to be out of the, the, your place, your voting place, out of the state. Not anymore. Now you can just ask for an absentee ballot. That's a good thing. The fraud that has taken place and took place here this is not theory. I keep hearing reports in the press. Well, there's no proof that fraud ever happens. Really? Here in Miami, we know that fraud happened because an election was thrown out because of, in essence, uh, ballot harvesting. That is what we should be very careful about. Follow Florida's lead. Stop fraud. Have a good absentee ballot program. That is what I think a lot of us support. Yeah. Well, I, I certainly I reported on that 1985 right. Miami City, Miami mayor's race, in which there were there was some absentee ballot fraud, and then state laws were changed. Since then, it seems to be okay. Uh, Absolutely, Congress, Congressman. Let me. I, we don't want to run out of time before I get a chance to ask you about a running mate for Joe Biden, because as you well know, a name that is prominently mentioned these days is Congresswoman Karen Bass of California, and we have learned. A good article in the Atlantic, other reporting that when she was a young woman, uh, she went to Cuba eight times when Fidel Castro was in charge. She was a member of the Vince Ramos Brigade, which supports all the socialist communist principles of the Cuban Revolution. She has since said that she has reconsiders that support. But what would it be like for you, do you think, or what would it be like for Joe Biden if, in fact, uh, Karen Bass? is selected as his running mate, what would it do in South Florida? That's interesting. She says she reconsidered, but look at what uh, she sent out when Fidel Castro died. Uh, and so, but by the way, let's be very clear. It's not only her. Um, when you look at the record of Joe Biden in normalizing relations, asking nothing in return, taking the Castro regime off the state sponsor of terrorism, uh, terrorism list, uh, trying to do anything and everything to help consolidate and give legitimacy to that regime, I would actually be surprised if uh, Joe Biden didn't get somebody who agreed with him. Uh, it would be devastating for the cause of a free Cuba, for the cause of a free Venezuela, for the cause of a free Nicaragua, if Joe Biden and his policies, and he's already said that he would go back to the policies that existed when he was in the White House as vice president. So it wouldn't, be, it wouldn't surprise me if he got somebody who, like him, did everything possible continuously to help the Castro regime, to help the Maduro regime, uh, and again, even to try to impose an anti-American dictator in Honduras, that's Joe Biden's record. So again, it shouldn't surprise us that the people that he's talking to 
feel pretty much the same way that he has. Congressman, uh, right in the short time we have left, something our first weekend that we now know there will be no second round of stimulus, at least immediately, while uh, it's stuck in Congress and everybody is home. There are a lot of people across this country, 30 million, about to lose $600 a week, and that is going to be very consequential. Um, with the stimulus in limbo and the debate about how much and how to distribute that, what, what can you tell us about what comes next and how fast? Well, look. Yeah, Glenn, it's unfortunate because people are hurting, and I think uh, we should be able to come together in a bipartisan fashion. I will tell you that the administration has sent at least four proposals to the Speaker Pelosi. She insists on, uh, again, uh, trillions of dollars, including billions, hundreds of billions of dollars to the states. But here's an interesting thing. There's about a half a trillion dollars, $500 billion in money that has already been sent to the states that has yet to be spent. And yet she refuses to negotiate unless she is able to put more money to the states, while the states still have money that hasn't been spent. That is absolutely insane. It's time to get real, negotiate in good faith, because people are hurting, and I, for one, uh, I'm willing to support a package that is more limited, that is focused, that helps get the economy going, and make sure that people are safe. And yes, those folks who have lost their jobs, we have to be able to help them. But, but, but the fact that Nancy Pelosi insists on spending, again, borrowing more money to send it to states when there's half a trillion dollars almost that still hasn't been spent by the states, that's just a definition of insanity. Congressman, always good to see you. Thank you for being with us today. My pleasure. Please be healthy. And you, you as do. well. Thank you very much. All right, coming up next, we're going to talk with the Miami-Dade Superintendent of Schools, Alberto Corvallo. Like Broward and Monroe, Miami-Dade schools are starting all online. And of course, the devil is in the detail. Stay tuned. We learned last week that schools in Broward County are going to open virtually online learning on August 19th. And this week, Miami-Dade said ditto, though postponed the start until the 31st, gauging that the COVID-19 trends are just not safe enough for the classroom just yet. And so teachers and students and families faced a host of new logistics and concerns and questions. The superintendent is with us today on Skype. Good morning to you. Superintendent Carvalho, good morning. Great to see you. Great to see you. All right, so describe to us what were the factors that went into this big decision to begin classes virtually online August 31st? How did you reach that conclusion? Well, what we're in essence doing is actually delaying the start of the school year by one full week and then delaying the in-school model by a month. We will revisit the conditions uh, around September 30th for a possible return to the schoolhouse as early as October 5th, if the conditions are appropriate. But uh, the reason why we decided to take this action at this point is absolutely informed by some of the brightest uh, medical and public health minds in our community and beyond. Individuals like the head of uh, pediatric medicine for the University of Miami, a former Surgeon General at the United States of America, who both advise myself, the school board, but also Metro Dade uh, Mayor uh, Carlos Jimenez. And they defined a number of criteria, such as the level of positivity, the percentage of individuals uh, who are tested and are uh, COVID positive. Yeah. We know that, that we saw a slight decrease just over the past couple of days, but then we learned that it went up again. We're up at 16.2%, uh, when a month ago we were at 6%. So we know that there's a great deal of variability. Secondly, uh, just the 
overall uh, strength uh, of the virus in our community. The total Superintendent. Third. Superintendent, and if I may jump in here. Uh, Glenn, I just mentioned on the state dashboard or the Miami-Dade dashboard today, the positivity rate is about 19%. What is the percentage that you think is satisfactory that would allow kids and teachers, staff to go back into schools? 5%? That's one, the, that's one of the most important questions. So if you look at the international standards declared by the World Health Organization, it would be 5%. However, the national standard looks at at least 10% or lower as an appropriate level uh, to bring students back to school. And that's what we are uh, looking for. That was the criteria that was adopted by our medical a set of experts, 10% positivity rate. Right, and also a, a trend line over time to make sure that the trajectory is down. Superintendents, what we are hearing by far the biggest concern, especially from parents of elementary age students, is the forecast of a month figuring out what to do when the child needs to be at home mm -hmm. and a parent needs to work. And that goes, I'm sure, for some of the teachers in the Miami-Dade district as well with children. How is the district able to a, a, attend to that concern in a, in a practical way, if at all. Yeah, it's, it's not lost to us, Glenna. It's, it's one of our biggest concerns. That's why we, not, we did not take this decision lightly. That's why I decided to delay it as much as possible. But then we were compelled to actually make a decision and announce it to the community. Look, our plan includes not only delay the physical start of the school year uh, by one month, uh, but uh, we are contemplating as well, and we presented this to the board, to start to bring earlier than stage two, groups of very fragile and young students in a very protective and limited way. That includes students with disabilities, uh, pre-K students, kindergarten students, because we recognize that there has to be a balance uh, between the protection as far as well-being and health of our teachers and students, but also a resumption of normalcy. But we need to do it in a protective, legitimate, and a very, very cautious way. So we envision a dimmer switch approach to restarting the school year. It is possible that we will bring some of those students back to the school's uh, sites prior to October 5th in a very limited, progressive, wave-like type. Superintendent, can I ask you a, a question about the details of going online? This week you had announced that there's a company called K-12 whose platform the district will be using. Um, One-stop shop, you call it. it this is a for-profit company. Oh. Uh, that I know you've done your research, you're a strategic thinker, you've probably seen that this company has been subject to some legal scrutiny and has been criticized from, for some of its student outcomes in the past. How did you arrive at the decision to choose this particular platform? Very, very important uh, question. So it was not my decision, it was a recommendation made by educators, including teachers, principals, central uh, staff office. What we acquired is simply the content, the 1,200 courses, and the content that will be used. We did not acquire the delivery, uh, which yes, across the country where they have operated schools themselves has been under scrutiny. The state of Florida uh, approves only two such models for online delivery. And the emergency order recently published required a synchronicity and uh, identical formats of teaching students who were online or in school. And the choice was limited to two uh, different platforms. One was K-12, and the other one was uh, FLVS, uh, Florida Online. It is a far superior product, and again, all we acquired was the content, not the delivery, not the methodology, not the teachers, 
not the schools, only the content. And it is a best-in-class content. Uh, Alberto, just in a very few seconds, I know Miami-Dade Public Schools feeds thousands and thousands of children every day. The children are going to be home. How are you going to feed those kids without the food that you provide? They may not have almost any food. Well, we all know that food insecurity is a crisis in our community. We're going to continue to do what we've always done. Michael, Glenn, you probably are aware of the fact that even though uh, we shut down schools back in March and then the school year came to an end, we're in the summer. We never stopped feeding. Uh, we have by now fed over 6 million meals out of 50 school sites that we continue to have open. We're going to continue to do that. In fact, we're going to amplify our efforts to continue to provide meals directly to children and families in our community. And the last point I'd like to make is, look, the memory that parents have of the last quarter of last school year, where they had to really jump from application to application for, uh, for the content for their students, that's all going to go away. A single platform uh, will be all they need. That's why beginning uh, September 24th through the 28th, teachers, parents, and students will go through a massive orientation to acquaint themselves with a new platform to make life much easier than what they remember last time around. In addition to 25,000 new laptop computers and 5,000 new hotspots to continue our 100% connectivity. Superintendent, we always appreciate your time. Thanks very much for being Thanks, with Alberta. us today. Appreciate Thank you very much. And coming up, another step forward this week in the push to right the wrongs so many black Americans face, a commission focused on black men and boys. Representative Frederica Wilson of Miami teamed up with Senator Marco Rubio to get that done, and she is going to join us next. Welcome back. We are glad you are with us on this Sunday. Let's look at the Broward County Sheriff's race. Then there were nine, nine candidates running for Broward County Sheriff. You probably are well aware of incumbent Gregory Tony and former Sheriff Scott Israel. Another leading contender is a department veteran presenting as kind of a drama-free candidate, BSO Colonel Al Pollock, who retired in 2017 after 40 years, rising from a patrol deputy to Colonel, all at BSO. And Colonel Pollock is with us via Skype from Davie today. Colonel, good morning. Good morning. Is How that, are you doing? Is that what we call you? Do we call you Colonel? What is a retired Colonel <laughs> called? <laughs> nah, it's okay. I'm good with it. Thank you so I much. Think, I think Colonel is good. Colonel, this morning in an op-ed in the Sun Sentinel, you write about your candidacy, why you believe you are the best candidate. And at one point you say, I am the honest candidate who will bring positive change to this law enforcement agency, that seems to imply that some of the other candidates are dishonest. Are there dishonest candidates? Yes, sir. That's a fact. Uh, first of all, um, the current sheriff shouldn't even be a deputy. And he was given a gift to become sheriff of Broward County. And he, and he do not have the experience, not the qualifications to run an agency as Broward Sheriff. All right, so you are saying that in his application to join the Coral Springs Police Department, when he didn't mention the fact that he had been involved in that shooting death in Philadelphia when he was just 14, you believe that disqualifies him? Absolutely, uh, Michael. One of the first things you have to do as a leader, especially when you are talking about being a sheriff or a chief, you have to be honest. 
I mean, if a deputy lied on their application, they would be terminated at any given moment. Um, so the, the same should be held for the sheriff in that top position. He should not be there. We are going to attempt to bring all the candidates, the sheriff and other candidates on. Um, Al Pollock, I want to make sure you get an opportunity today, not just talk about other candidates, but to talk about you and what you think as a, a longtime BSO employee and now retired, living the retired high life. <laughs> what is making you jump back in and what do you bring to this position? Uh I bring, number one, honesty, experience, qualified, and I'm capable of leading BSO to the next level, to the greatness that it once was. Uh, BSO is broken. Um, it's, it's being mismanaged, and the politics have really infiltrated it, and, and it's just bad. So, you know, know, I, I, just, I just want to stop you, and I don't mean to interrupt, but you just said something that so resonates. The Broward Sheriff's the Broward Sheriff is an elected position. It is a political position. And the people in it, whether they like it or not, have to be politicians. You are or have not been one of those. How do you expect to handle being a top law enforcer, but also have to be a politician? How do you do that? Uh, first of all, Lena, we need to put public safety first. Uh, that's what I will do. My job is to protect the the people of Broward County, that's my job. And that's what I will do first and foremost, is to make sure that the citizens of Broward County are safe and protected. Uh, crime is up in Broward County. So that's one of the things that I will, number one, work on to get crime down. Violent crime is, is up, but no candidate is talking about it. Well, looking at the organizational chart, for example, of BSO, I mean, it's a huge agency, over 5,000 employees, corrections officers, fire uh, safety, and of course, road deputies. What is it about the way it's organized you think is wrong? Where, what would you change? Uh, first of all, I will build a management team that has to experience and the qualification to take us to the next level. Uh, it has to start with the leader. You have to have some institutional knowledge to know about fire, to know about detention. Again, Mike, it's a public safety agency. Uh, the current sheriff only supervised about six people throughout his entire career. He was given a gift by the governor to come in and, and supervise almost 6,000. Can we talk about the practical effects right now in real time when everyone is focused on the response to COVID-19? What would you do differently from the Broward Sheriff's Organization in managing? There, there have been, I don't know the number off the top of my head, but certainly too many COVID-19 victims within the department. What is the department doing right now that you would change? Give a, give a grade to how BSO is handling the COVID response. Uh, if, if I had to give BSO a grade today, it would be an L for failure. That's number one. First of all, I would have made sure that the men and women had the proper equipment from day one. We knew that this was coming about. You have to be prepared. You need a leader that's going to think out of the box and be prepared for all situations pretty much. And, and that's one. You have to protect the employees in order to be able to protect the public. Uh, BSO uh, is the second largest county in the state, you know, population-wise, but we have the highest number of COVID-19 employees in the whole state of Florida. Something's wrong. That's because you have people at the sheriff's office that do not know what they are doing. They do not know how to protect the employees. 
and I will protect them. Number one, equipment. Uh, go in and do an evaluation on communications. That's one of the hardest hit areas because of the work environment, you know, the space that they work in. Um, there's all kinds of changes that you can make. You just got to be able to, as a leader, to think out of the box and bring in the right resources, you know, to get the job done. And I can do that, and I will do that. Colonel Al Pollock, we are so glad you were able to join us today. We will be following this race very closely between now and August 18th. Thanks very much. For sure. Thanks so much. Congresswoman Frederica Wilson is with us next. The renewed focus on civil rights and systemic racism came into very sharp focus this week in Washington as Congress created a commission to study and make recommendations to improve the lives of black men and boys. South Florida lawmakers took the lead. Democratic Congresswoman Frederica Wilson in the House, Republican Marco Rubio in the Senate. And with us to delve into the details is Congresswoman Wilson live via Skype from Miami. Great to see you, Congresswoman. Welcome. So this is, this is kind of collaboration 2.0. You and Senate, now Senator Rubio back in Florida as Florida lawmakers did a very similar thing in the state. Explain, if you would, what is this framework? Well, this is huge. This is a federal, it's like establishing a brand new federal agency in the Office of Civil Rights, a permanent commission to study the disparities affecting black men and boys, and a team of experts to come up with legislation to mitigate those inequities. It's a black caucus bill, and the members of the commission will all be members of the Congressional Black Caucus and experts appointed by the president, the Speaker of the House, and other uh, leaders to work on this commission. So, for instance, what is happening now as a result of the George Floyd murder by the policeman, that will be the commission's job to come up with legislation to solve these issues with police brutality, uh, crime, uh, neighborhood uh, criminal uh, gangs, everything that black men and boys are affected by, even sneakers. Yeah. We know that sneakers are the cause of many black boys killing each other. So we're partnering with the NFL and civil rights organizations, the Council of Great City Schools. It's huge, and they call it landmark legislation because nothing like this has ever been proposed and nothing like this has ever passed. So it's a permanent commission in the Office of Civil Rights for the express purpose of my body of work <laughs> looking at black men and boys. And I've been on this mission for so long, since we, I was a school principal. We, we know you have, and the 5,000 Role Models of Excellence program, which you began, has had some great successes. Uh, Congresswoman, let me ask you about sort of uh, a, a terrible predicament the country is going through, including your constituents. Uh, many of them have been receiving $600 a week because they lost their jobs because of COVID-19. And those payments stopped on Friday, and there is no successor program. They're talking about it in Washington. What is going to happen to the people whose lives really have been dependent 
you know, paying the rent, buying groceries on the money they received uh, from that $600 a week payment? Well, what, what I think and what I've been hearing is they're going to start it again, but they're going to give people $200 instead of $600 for just October. And then in November, automatically it's going to go back to $600. So it will appear as if the president stepped in and gave them a brand new stimulus to the economy. So that will affect his election. So that's the scheme. It's a scheme. So for, for uh, July, uh, for August and September, probably, they will get $200. All of a sudden, the beginning of November, it will go back to $600. Everyone will get a check for the $600. And it will appear that the president stepped in to save everybody's life. And of course, he'll send out a letter the way he did with the other stimulus. So it's all a scheme to help his, his re-election. And it's so bad. Congresswoman, so I just, um, in, the, in the minute that we, in the minute that we have left together, I just, um, this landmark legislation, I just, I had a question I really think people will want to know. This commission created will be able to make recommendations after some studying about the social conditions and infrastructure that affects black men and boys. Will this commission, aside from making recommendations, really have any teeth to it? It will have lots of teeth because the legislation that will be proposed will be sponsored by the commission members who are all members of the Congressional Black Caucus. And they are not just ordinary members. They will be appointed according to the committee on which they serve. So there will be a, a member from education, uh, Homeland Security, uh, Health and Human Services, Ways and Means, Appropriations, whatever it takes to make that legislation whole. And it's a bipartisan committee. And bipartisan means that when it leaves our commission, it will have passed the test for Republicans and Democrats. So Marco and I made sure right. that this mission that had teeth. Yeah, Representative, I beg your pardon. We have to interrupt and say thank you for being with us. Good luck with the commission. Hope it really accomplishes something. Frederica Wilson, <laughs> so much. we appreciate it. Take so. We'll be right back. Stay tuned. As always, we are grateful for your time. We thank you so much for being with us today. And remember, we are online 24-7 at Local10.com. And Local10 is with you every step of the way. Remember, stay informed, get involved, have a great Sunday. This is a Local10 editorial with WPLG President Bert Medina. It's time to have your voice heard. If you're registered to vote, it's time to get out and vote. The primary election takes place on August 18th. You can vote on Election Day, or you can take part in early voting. In Miami-Dade and Monroe counties, early voting starts on August 3rd and goes through August 16th. In Broward County, early voting runs from August 8th through August 16th. For locations and hours, go to local10.com. It doesn't matter if you vote early or wait until Election Day. What matters is that you go out and vote. Of course, this is just the beginning of the conversation. Let's continue it on Local10.com.
This has been a Local 10 editorial. We encourage the presentation of contrasting points of view.